0: Hey, church family, I hope that today finds you so well. Um, Today, I am particularly excited because we are starting a brand new series entitled Cries of the Heart. Let me just say that we are so stoked as a church staff, as a church family, for what this series holds for us as a church. And if you have a Bible, let me just say, go ahead and pull that out. If you have a notebook, go ahead and get those ready. Um, And we're gonna dive right in. Once again, we believe that note takers are in fact world changers. You got it. So if you're watching this with your family or your friends, make sure that they have a way to take notes. Um, This series is going to take place in the Psalms. And before I talk about the main topic today, I'm just going to spend some time to kind of lay a foundation of understanding. And I have a few points to make, and then we're going to be opening the scriptures to Psalm 37. Uh, Let me start with a a quote from, from Martin Luther. Um, He found the Psalms to be what he called a school of prayer. The Psalms are a school of prayer. Listen to what he says. He says, The Christian can learn to pray in the Psalms. For here, he can hear how the saints talk with God. The number of moods which are expressed here, joy and suffering, hope and care, make it possible for every Christian to find himself in it and to pray with the Psalms. The Psalms are some of the most beloved poems in, in Christian and Jewish Jewish history that put language to our emotions and experiences in this life. I've heard it said this way. In the Psalms, man's words to God have become God's words to man. They, they teach us the language of prayer. They teach us how to process our emotions. They give us a vision and an understanding of Um, of our our spiritual journey with the ups and downs and everything in between. So throughout the Psalms, we see this language and this posture of crying out. This is something that God's people have done throughout the centuries. They they cry out to God and, and not just cry for the sake of crying, but they cry out to God himself as the one who has something to say and something to do about the circumstances that we find ourselves in. As I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but think about what it means to cry out to something or someone, and I think that it can be defined this way. A cry is a spontaneous response to an urgent need. A spontaneous response to an urgent need. Listen to a handful of the ways that the Psalms reference the idea of crying out to God. In Psalm 57, it says, I cry out to God the Most High, to God who fills his purpose for me. In Psalm 18, in my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. In Psalm 77, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Again in Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let my ears be attentive to the voice of the pleas for mercy. I can't help but think that, that you and I have found ourselves with some urgent needs in these days. As a world, as a country, as individuals, I am willing to bet that there are some urgent needs that have come to the surface in the recent months and years. And, and those urgent urgent needs may have left you in a posture of, of crying out. This posture of crying out, it may be like a physically, like I'm on my knees weeping, or it might look like just this holy frustration and confusion like much of the Psalms portray. And I think it's important to know that God welcomes that type of posture. God invites a posture that cries out before him. I wanna pause for a moment right here and give you some time to think. What do you find yourself crying out for in these days? Like, What's the cry of your heart? What are you crying out for in this moment of life? What is a desperate need that leaves you crying out to God? For the sermon today, I have the honor of conversing about a life that cries out for wisdom. Our hearts have a cry for wisdom. Let me just say these are trying times, difficult times, but as followers of Jesus, we cry out to God himself for wisdom. So what does it look like to cry Out for wisdom and to possess a heart that looks to god for biblical understanding in these days what does it look like to live wisely as a follower of jesus in our cultural moment it seems that the majority of people have all sorts of ideas on how you should respond or live your life right now like the news tells you what is wise Um, News broadcasting differs from one another, so you might get a different type of wisdom based on who you're listening to. Friends tell you what is wise. Social media platforms tell you how to live or how not to live. There are so many voices right now. There's so much noise that seek to inform you on the decision that you ought to make in whatever given circumstance. It's probably one of the most confusing times in all of history Everyone seems to have an idea about how you should live or how you should respond. And no one actually knows whether to turn this way or that way, but everyone actually seems to have an opinion about what everybody else should do. Maybe you've experienced this tension yourself. But as a community of people who have partnered with God, who have been rescued from sin and death and have been invited to live in this new reality, we consult God for wisdom. We consult God, we go to God, we cry out to him for wisdom on what to do next. We align our perspective, we we conform our lives to the prompting and the commands of God himself. We stand on God's promises and the system of God's kingdom to direct our paths. May we choose to be people who come desperately before God, crying out to gain perspective and wisdom that he gives so freely. A reality that you find throughout scripture is this, God loves a desperate heart. Like God responds to a desperate heart. A community of those crying out to God has been the start of every revival throughout history, if you think about it. I've heard it said this way, that both God and revival are as close as our cry. Like it's as close as our cry. A desperate cry moves the heart of God. You get a glimpse of God's heart all throughout the Psalms in passages like this in Psalm 138, verse three. It says, in the day when I cried out, there's that posture of crying out. It says, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. And we often sing about God being a good, good father, right? You're a good, good father. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? We know that any good father responds quickly to a child crying out. Right? How much more does our Father in heaven respond to you when you cry out to Him, the best Father? Our good Father, He comes running towards a heart that cries out to Him in need. A general rule and a biblical concept that we see in Scripture is this. Wisdom comes with proximity. Like Wisdom comes into our life when we are in close proximity to the wise. Uh, I have the honor of spending a lot of time with my friend and ministry partner, Luke, Something about Luke is he has found he has this newfound passion and hobby um, known as lawn care. And he has an app on his phone that prompts him like, hey, you need to go water your lawn or hey, it's time to feed your lawn. I didn't even know feeding your lawn was a thing. But he researches lawn care in his free time. Like you can't talk to him without being like, hey, let me give you a lawn update like where I'm at right now. Let me just say my simple proximity to Luke has given me lawn wisdom, right? The only thing I needed to do to gain wisdom in lawn care is by spending time with him. Like, I didn't have to learn the hard way, because he learned the hard way. He's like, man, I mixed these chemicals, totally ruined it, and took a, took a while to... Like, his mistakes kept me from my mistakes. I didn't have to research. I simply needed to remain in close proximity to Luke. Think of the iconic movie, The Karate Kid. The classic tale of a young boy spending hours in close proximity with the legendary Mr. Miyagi. And sure enough, over time with life lessons and and the repetitive wax-on, wax-off motions, the young karate kid didn't just grow in knowledge, but he grew in wisdom from close proximity to the one who withheld wisdom. Think of Jesus' words in John 15. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide close proximity with me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I, am, I in him, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't know if you spent much time in your yard as of lately, Luke, I know that's true of you, but a vine is in extremely close proximity to the branches. In fact, I don't even know if I know the difference, right? They're, they're one and the same, and, and that's the relationship that Jesus wants us to have with him. Like, if you want the wisdom of God, it's God himself. It's on the other side of being in close proximity with Jesus and his way of doing things in this world. It's when we commune consistently with God, abide and remain in him, that we see that he abides and remains in us. We become wise in the ways of the kingdom and how it works when we are in close proximity to the ruler of the kingdom in which we live, right? Are you living in close proximity to God in these days? Are you seeking Him through the two-way conversation that we call prayer? Are you studying His living words that give language to what His kingdom is like? Where has your source of wisdom been lately? I've heard it said that distance creates distortion. Um, Think about a text message or an email. It's a distant conversation and it's so easy to read into the message a tone that isn't there. Right? I often get text messages that, that say, Hey, Nick, how are you doing? And it's really easy for me to read, Hey, Nick, how are you doing? You know what I mean? Like distance creates distortion. When a, when a relationship is distant, information is often distorted. It is dif- difficult to access wisdom when we are distant from the source of wisdom. That's basic knowledge. Luckily for us in the living word of God, he knew that we were going to need this. So he gave us seven books known as the wisdom literature. Like God knows we need it, so so he breathed it into his word. Not only that, but there's this promise that we stand on that we find in James 1, verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to him without reproach, and it'll be given. So it's like, dude, let him ask God, and he's going to give you the hookup. He's going to give you the wisdom that you need by simply coming to him, crying out to him, and asking him. So we're going to look at a psalm today, and this psalm has a rather famous passage in it that you might recall, but the whole chapter is just pure gold. Um, Psalm 37 is a response to the evil that David sees in the world, which couldn't be more timely for us because it'd be nice to be wise in how to respond to evil, right? Um, Like we see all the news headlines flooding in and it seems to be evil after evil, but this was written in David's later years as his wisdom had matured. um, And I've broken this 40 40-verse chapter into three different sections, and as we cry out to God, may this psalm become a source of wisdom for us. May this be a place where where we see clearly what it looks like to live wisely in the days that are evil. Eugene Peterson says that wisdom is the art of living skillfully in whatever actual, actual condition we find ourselves in. It's the art of living skillfully wherever you find yourself. We need some skills to navigate through this world right now. Wouldn't you agree? Before we read this psalm, let's just come before God and do what James invites us to do and just ask God for wisdom. Would you pray with me? God, we cry out to you. Give us perspective. Give us wisdom that we may do the good work that you created for us to do, God. We come before you desperately that you would fill our minds, that you would give us perspective. Give us a worldview that is kingdom-minded. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Psalm 37, I'm just going to jump right in. It says this Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. That's beautiful. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. First point I want to make here about a life of wisdom is that a life of wisdom waits on the Lord. A life of wisdom waits on the Lord. We hear this concept. Um, threaded throughout this passage. It says things like this, like, be still, wait, trust, don't fret, refrain. It's the meek, the patient. Those are the ones who will find delight in the Lord and access his abundant peace. From this Psalm, we quickly see that we have this freedom not to fret and we can wait patiently and confidently. I can't help but think of the famous line in Isaiah 40. It says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with with wings like eagle, eagles, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. If that's what waits on the other side of waiting on the Lord, let's hurry up and start waiting on him. Let's, let's gain confidence in what we know that he is going to do. This Psalm references the meek inheriting the land. It says that twice in this section. And if you're familiar with Jesus's famous sermon on the mountain, he says that almost verbatim. He said, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. The kingdom of God will be given to those who wait on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. By waiting, I don't mean just like inaction, right? Just chilling out. But like active listening, actively regaining a kingdom perspective in evil times. I see a lot of people waiting on the news, right? And waiting on scrolling through social media and waiting on the news headlines, um, but we are people who wait for the headlines that God is going to bring into this world. The, the, the wise life is one who sits in the presence of God and remembers this next section right here. Let's start in verse 12. The wicked plots against the, right, the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked. I love that. For he sees that his day is coming The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. This is crazy right here. Their sword shall enter their own throats, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever." They're, they are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked, they're, they're going to perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the, the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked bo- borrows, but they do not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he falls, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Second point of wisdom is, is this, a life of wisdom pursues godliness. Uh, a, a wise person knows the result of both godliness and ungodly living. This is when a life of wisdom, I think, gets kind of confusing, because many people who live godly lives, they prosper in the world standards, Right? I'm sure that you have have people in your life that are like this. Some people who have arranged their life with greed and selfishness and those who inflict injustice on others, the evil or what the, the scriptures say, these wrongdoers in the world, they often prosper in a worldly sense. Whether that be in relationships or in financial success or whatever it is, it's like, man, they're living this poor life, but why are they so blessed physically? A wise person knows that the ultimate reward is given by God. A a wise person knows that worldly riches are all that the wicked will ever be able to rejoice in. Like their eternal destruction is near. For, For the wicked, the life they have is as good as it will ever get. So it's wise to step back and regain a perspective that says godliness is the greatest gain. We may not prosper according to the kingdom of the world, but that's not the kingdom that you and I live for. A wise person seeks godliness because the ultimate weapon we see in this passage is godliness itself. The godly will always win the battle against the wicked. The, the wicked seem to destruct themselves with their own weapons. Like, so, some of you listening in today are wise because you know that a wicked lifestyle res- results in your own defeat. Like, wickedness always turns around and defeats itself. Friends, let's pursue godliness. It's important to note that there's a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowing something and doing something are, are totally different. I've heard it said that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is choosing not to put it in a fruit salad, right? Knowing what is godly and living a godly lifestyle are two very, very different things. Wisdom is being educated on a godly life, but then answering Jesus's words to come and actually follow him, living out the lifestyle of godliness. Wisdom is knowledge used correctly. Let's continue in verse 25. I've been young and now I'm old. Can I get any amens out there? Uh, Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous, once again, shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him condem- be condemned, but he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land, and you will look on what is you will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright for there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in a time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves because they take refuge in him. The final point that I wanna make about wisdom from this passage is that a life of wisdom trusts God above all else. We can trust God to save. David talks about how he was a young man and now he's old and and he goes through his years and he has found that God is tried and true. He he is true to remain faithful. He has tasted and seen that God is good and he has seen him come through for him. So he chooses to trust God above, above all else. He has lived enough through the ups and downs, the victories and the defeats, enough to know that trusting God will result in salvation while the ungodly life will always lead to ruin. Trusting in God, friends, always, always, always leads to victory. Let's not forget that. The safest refuge is in the presence of God. It's trustworthy. It's tried and true. You can bank your entire life on it. You can build your life on that. The most wise among us are those who trust God above all else. The difficult thing about trust is that it requires a big dose of humility to say, I don't know best, you know best. Teach me and I'll follow. It requires for us to lay ourselves down. Many of you know the story of Charles Bolden in 1859. He famously walked across a tightrope over Niagara Falls with, with nothing holding him on, just just free solo, just walked across it a quarter of a mile with roaring waters below. And the crowd stood around and oohed and awed. and he became so comfortable with this tightrope journey that he ended up doing it on stilts. Pretty crazy, right? And then, and then he actually ended up doing it on a bike, and then he got a little bit comfortable with it, and he even brought a stove and cooked an egg on the rope. Pretty crazy. He eventually did it by pushing a wheelbarrow, across this falls and the crowd erupted in celebration when he had completed it. So Charles asked the crowd, do you believe that I could push somebody in the wheelbarrow across? And, and the crowd's like, yes, yes, do it, do it. This is when Charles asks the famous question, who wants to get in? If you're saying, yes, yes, I trust you, you could totally do it, do it, do it. How come nobody's accepting the invite? Would you get in the wheelbarrow? The point is this, it's one thing for us to say we believe in God It's a whole other level of trust when we get in the wheelbarrow. Jesus has carried many across uh, to heaven's gates. He's familiar with this route. He can be trusted. We live wisely when we put our full trust in God and in in the one who has the ability to transfer us from one kingdom to the next. But it takes a level of humility to get into the wheelbarrow. It's a moment when we say, not my will, but yours be done, God. J.I. Packer says it this way, Not until we become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. Let's allow God to shape our understanding in this moment of life. Let's trust Him, the Rescuer, the Good Father, the Redeemer. As we navigate the tough waters of year 2020, may the cry of our heart be that of true godly wisdom. With desperation, may we come to God. May we wait on the Lord. May we pursue godliness. May we trust God above all else. Friends, may, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. We love you, church family. We can't wait to see you in person. Have a great rest of your day.